the book of 1 Peter. book of 1 Peter, our text today is to be found in chapter 5, verses 1 through the first part of verse 5. There is overlap here between what we're going to cover today and what we're going to cover, Lord willing, next week. And yes, we are cutting off in the middle of a verse, not because those two sections are unrelated, but because they are related, but we're going to cover them from two different vantage points. Just by way of review and context, the book of 1 Peter is all about steadfast hope in a foreign land. Steadfast hope in a foreign land. In chapter 4, Peter has just reminded Christians that suffering for Christ's sake is normal and it is to be expected in the world as the original readers of Peter's letter would be experiencing in that particular moment. The hostility of the world against the people of God is on the rise, and Peter is writing to them to give them direction on how to handle that, how to respond to that. He is reminding Christians that this suffering is normal, that it is to be expected, and he is writing to teach them how to keep their eyes on Christ, and how to live godly, faithful lives, steadfast lives in the midst of the trouble. He's reminding them that mission number one is not at all costs to avoid the trouble. He is teaching them how to live steadfastly in the midst of the trouble. It's a simple concept, isn't it? In fact, athletes talk about it all the time, don't they? Resilience, standing firm in the face of the enemy. But when you get off the playing field and you get onto the real battlefield, it's still a simple concept, but it's not an easy task, is it? Peter understands that. He's experienced it. We'll see that in a few moments. We are not meant to face this task alone. Everything that Peter is writing to teach to the believers is meant to be applied in the context of a godly community of faithful believers who will encourage us and help us and whom we can encourage and help to live godly lives in the present world. And so if we are going to be steadfast and faithful godly people in a foreign land, then we need to be a part of a steadfast, faithful, godly community in the midst of a foreign land. And if we are going to be a godly, faithful, steadfast community, then we need to have godly, steadfast, faithful leaders among us who will preach the Word of God, who will teach the people what God has said, and who will lead carefully and who will faithfully equip the saints to live such godly lives. And so in our text for today, the Apostle Peter turns his attention to the leaders of the church. Same context, same issues, same goal, but now he speaks directly to those who lead God's people, to the elders or the pastors among them. And here he lays out for them a solemn charge, or, if you will, a brotherly exhortation. Something that must direct the thinking and the focus 
the attitude and the message, the reputation of the pastors who would lead God's people faithfully. But while this text is directed primarily to pastors, it is meant to be heard among all the Christians, all the saints who are gathered. This is meant not just to give a charge to the pastors, but to help God's people understand the gravity of the ministry in which they are all involved and to, uh, to learn the character that God expects of those who lead them. And so there is something here for all Christians to learn. And so in this text, as we study it this morning, we're going to see the character of godly, steadfast leadership and we're going to see how God's people are to respond to that leadership. So let's look at our text now, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders." That is the text we will look at for this morning. The scripture that, or, or the language that scripture uses is precise and it is important language. We need to pay attention to the details when we study scripture. We need to understand the language that it uses. When we study God's word, we don't want to settle for just getting the gist or the general idea or getting in the ballpark of what Scripture is trying to say. We want to understand what has truly been revealed by a God who is orderly and detailed. It seems common today to try to dumb down the language of Scripture and generalize it so that everybody can grasp it in whatever context there are. They are. My argument to you, my contention, is that we ought to be doing it the other way. We ought to be leading people to understand the language of Scripture so that we understand what it is God has said. That helps us to stay on track in our study and to understand exactly what God means when He reveals things in the way He does. So when God uses specific terminology and imagery to describe His people and to describe the leaders among them, we need to understand, we need to seek to understand that imagery. God calls His people sheep. And don't be quick to say, aw. God calls His people sheep. And the leaders of His people He calls shepherds. And sometimes He calls them elders. Sometimes he calls them overseers. But the image that he uses right here is that of a shepherd. By the way, the word pastor comes from a word having to do with shepherding sheep. 
Unfortunately, today it seems more common to describe the modern pastor as an executive who is the president of a corporation, who is expected to be a visionary, who's expected to be a thought leader or a culture warrior or a motivational speaker or a trend setter. We tend to expect all of the executive powers to be present in the one that we call a pastor, and we tend to minimize the main responsibility that that man has to be a minister of the Word of God to his people. That is why some of you have noticed that we have prominent Christian leaders who are known for everything but writing their own sermon. Because we've lost sight of what God means when he calls us shepherds. While there might be some aspects of those other ideas that may be reflected in those who lead the church, they all fall woefully short of the point that God makes in his word and of what he has designed for his church and what he has set forth in the language that he uses. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we have a God-given job description for those that he has called to lead his church on earth. This passage helps us to learn God's mind and God's expectations rather than man's creative entrepreneurial ideas. What is the responsibility of a pastor in a church? What is the great need today in terms of leadership of God's people? To what should a pastor be giving his attention? And what does all of this have to do with the rest of the believers in the church? This passage helps us with that. It teaches us a little something about not just what godly leadership is, but what a godly church is all about. So in these verses, we will see the context of steadfast leadership. We'll see the practice of steadfast leadership. We'll see the motivation for steadfast leadership that God gives to his church. And then we'll consider the response that God expects of his people to this steadfast leadership. This is an awkward passage for me to preach because I'm preaching it first and foremost to myself. I do that every week, I know that, but usually I'm doing that in the study leading up to Sunday, and then I overload on you. But now I'm still overloading on myself, but you're here to watch because you need to understand what God expects of the leaders of any local church. You need to know what to look for, and you need to know how to relate to those who lead you. So let's consider, first of all, the context of steadfast leadership. We see it a little bit here, but we've seen it all the way through the book of 1 Peter to this point. The command will come in verse 2, but the basis of the command and the context and the reason behind it and, and all the foundational material is given here in verse 1. Why is Peter saying what he is saying here and why does it matter? The passage begins in verse 1 with the word, so. That word is right there with the word, therefore. And it links to the passage, to, to this passage, everything that has come before. Everything that has already been covered in 1 Peter to this point. Peter writes this book, as we have seen, 
to a persecuted and a scattered church. The hostility of the world is rising toward them because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and because of their commitment to Him and the preaching of His gospel. This is a time of great trouble for God's people. Peter is writing to comfort them. He is writing to remind them that God has not abandoned them, but that Jesus is going to return and they will receive the glorious eternal inheritance that Christ has preserved for them in heaven. Peter is calling God's suffering people to turn their eyes to Christ. He is reminding God's people, this is not a time for us to just sit back and relax. This is not a time to take the world lightly. And now he's saying, leaders, that is especially true of you. And then he goes on, so I exhort the elders among you. To this point, Peter's attention has been given to the entire church. But now, for a brief moment, he turns his attention to the elders as if he's saying, in light of all that I have said regarding your suffering, Christians, regarding your suffering, Christian leaders, and how you ought to stand fast in it, I want to talk to your pastors for a moment. And here we see the beginning of a glimpse of the important role that these leaders, these elders, will play in the life of a church. Under normal, peaceful circumstances, the elders have a vital role to play in a church, don't they? Much more so when the church is under duress and there are subtle and now not so subtle attacks left and right on the people of God in terms of their ideology, in terms of their faith, in terms of their commitment to Christ, in terms of the hostility that is rising in the world, these elders have a particular responsibility to lead God's people, to care for God's people, to, to point them in the direct, right direction, to comfort them and to protect them, especially in times of trouble. And by the way, as we have noted all along in our study, All of this describes the church today, just as it described the church back then. The world is no friend of Christianity. Do we understand that yet? The world is no friend of Christianity, and there is a growing resistance and opposition to Christianity. Beloved, that means there is a growing increasing resistance and opposition to you. And you may not feel it yet. I, I hope you don't. I hope this doesn't overturn your life. But we need to understand that it may. It is likely to. It is to be expected. And in all of this, I am very concerned that there is a painful leadership vacuum in the church today. There may be countless local churches throughout our cities, but we are in desperate need of leaders who are true biblical shepherds, who are devoting their lives to prayer and to the ministry of the word in their local congregations. In some cases, these congregations don't have leadership. In other cases, these congregations have leadership who have no backbone. And Peter is calling these men to stand up and embrace the call of God to shepherd the flock. Now, I want to make a couple quick observations about elders 
because I think it's necessary even as we continue to grow as a church and press ahead to understand what Peter means when he's talking about elders and what this means for the church. Scripture uses three terms pretty much interchangeably for the office that we call pastor or elder. One term is elder. Another term is bishop. You may not like that word, that's okay. The idea there is overseer. And the other term is shepherd or pastor. Elder generally refers to the maturity of the individual. Um, often it is used to refer to age, but there is no age cutoff mark necessarily for pastors, but it refers primarily to the maturity of the individual as well as to the dignity and gravity of the office that he holds. The word bishop also refers to the position, but it, as I said, highlights the role of oversight. The title shepherd or pastor emphasizes the responsibility that he holds and really his heart for the people, his heart to teach them and lead them and to spiritually feed them. So with all of this in view, we can, we can surmise from that that elders are to be spiritually mature, honorable men who are set apart for the purpose of preaching, teaching, leadership, and oversight in the local church. And immediately, you're going to start to think of those in perfect terms, terms of perfection. I challenge you to find one perfect pastor in the entire world today. You won't find one. In fact, I don't challenge you because you're going to spend the rest of your lives holding good men to unreasonable standards, and you'll end up becoming a problem for that local church if you do. So don't do that. The, the perfect model of this is only the Lord Jesus Christ. But any man who will lead a church faithfully ought to be striving for this. This ought to be the drive of his ministry. Now the second thing to see is that the New Testament pattern in local churches is that there is a plurality of elders within a church. That's the way the word is used most often. Plurality means more than one. And there's a reason for that. I don't want to spend too much time here, but the reason for that is, one, it protects the congregation from tyranny and abusive leadership. Secondly, it protects the pastor from error and foolish decisions in his own leadership. It protects him from burnout of trying to do too much himself. Third, it provides stability for the church, assuring that the ministry doesn't rest on the shoulders of one man. It is not a distinct and direct command that every church must have more than one, but it is an ideal that is laid forth in Scripture. So much so that if it is possible for a church to have more than one, they ought to pursue it for these reasons. And then thirdly, I'll just mention this used to not even be something that was debatable, but now in, in our context it seems to be a, a big issue that Scripture's pattern is that these are men. We talked about that when we looked at our study in 1 Timothy and the qualifications of an elder. And I know that doesn't sit well in today's culture, but this is the biblical pattern. So now, as we come back to 1 Peter 5, in the rest of verse 1, Peter begins his exhortation, his challenge to these leaders by talking a little bit about himself. This is the most that he's going to talk about himself in this 
book. But he does it here for a reason. He is exhorting, he is coming alongside of them, and he is speaking, if you will, out of his own experience. And so he writes to the elders, he says, as a fellow, a fellow elder. He's not commanding them as an apostle, though he could have. He is not speaking down to them, though in a sense he could have. But he is speaking to them as one of them, one who understands the challenges that he's calling them to, one who has faced the difficulty, one who is coming alongside them to encourage them. That's what the word exhort means. He understands how difficult this task can be. But he is coming along as one of them to exhort them to stand fast and be faithful in it. But notice he doesn't speak to them not just as a fellow elder, but also as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. That might take our minds back to chapter 4 that we studied not long ago in verses 12 through 19 just last week, where he has just encouraged the people in their suffering that as they suffer for Christ, they are partners with him in his suffering, and they can take great encouragement like that in that. So Peter is saying, I've also experienced that. But there's more to it for Peter. He is not just sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He has witnessed them with his own eyes, he said, the sufferings that, that are not just a share in the sufferings of Christ, but the actual sufferings of Christ. Peter walked with Jesus. He spent his time and observed the burden of his heart. He stood by Jesus with sword in hand when the soldiers came to carry him away. Peter watched from a distance as Jesus suffered during his trial. He remembers the look. You know the look. He remembers that look that pierced to his very soul after he had denied him three times. He remembers the empty tomb. He remembers seeing the risen Christ. He remembers the restoring charge that was given to him directly from the Savior's lips, Feed my sheep. No doubt, Peter's exhortation to pastors comes in the light of all of this. From a deep well of experience and conviction and confidence. And he says, he writes to them as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He said that to the believers as well. When you suffer, you are sharing in his sufferings, but you are also sharing in the glory that is to be revealed but for Peter, this wasn't just a look into the future. It was a look into the past. Peter also remembers standing on the mountain with James and John as Jesus pulled back the veil of his flesh at the transfiguration and he caught, as it were, a glimpse of his heavenly glory. And Peter is telling the pastors of these churches, I want to direct my attention to you for a moment as a fellow elder, but as a fellow elder who knows what it is to walk with Christ, who has seen him suffer and who has seen a glimpse of his glory. I'm telling you, it is all real and it is all worth it. I understand the weight of the responsibility, but I have also tasted the glory of the reward. So church, Pastors, 
listen up. And having sufficiently grabbed our attention that Peter comes to give some key points of instruction here to these elders. And so we move in now from the context of steadfast leadership now to the practice of steadfast leadership in verses 2 and 3. This is the command. Here is the exhortation that he so eagerly wants to pass on to the elders of these churches. And simply put, he says this in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's the job description of a pastor. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Every aspect of that statement is important. And every aspect of that statement will drastically change how pastors behave themselves if they will understand it and obey. He says, shepherd the flock. When he speaks of shepherds and sheep, his audience would have understood that imagery, at least to some degree. Probably more so than we do today. There is a lot more to it than we might initially realize. To us, sheep are cute, cuddly things. They're stuffed animals on your kids' beds. They're the cute little things that we count at night when we can't go to sleep. Have any of you ever worked with sheep before? They're filthy. They're filthy creatures. They're ignorant creatures. Now, they're more intelligent than we give them credit for often, but when it comes to direction and protection, they are utterly helpless. They have no defense mechanism, so they are easily preyed upon. They are easily led into harm because they will lead themselves into harm. Left to themselves, they will either lead themselves and the whole flock together into a place of harm, or they will just stay put and starve. In terms of filthiness, without the shepherd's proactive, continual care, sheep will die from their own filth. This is the imagery that Jesus uses for us. His church. And it's not by accident. And it's not a very nice way to describe people either, is it? It's not very flattering, I know. But spiritually speaking, it's true. Isn't it? We are wired to follow. The most type A among us is still meant to follow somebody. And we will naturally gravitate toward anyone who will stand up and lead us. So, if good leaders are absent, the true shepherds, then bad leaders will rise up, the hirelings, and lead the sheep into a place of danger or destruction. And will follow. That is why there is such a strong influence in today's world from false teachers. Because they've stood up, they've been given platforms of prominence, and people will follow. And that is why Peter gives us this teaching here. Because we need discernment. We need to be fed 
We need to be given instruction from the truth of God's word. We need to be led in knowing how to put it into practice in our lives. We need to be warned of the dangers that life presents. We need to be shown how to live righteously in this world with our steadfast hopes set on Christ. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus constantly viewed the crowds as sheep having no shepherd. And that was a burden on his heart. And likewise today, many wander around like those crowds, having no idea of the danger that surrounds them. We desperately need a shepherd, don't we? And I say praise God that that shepherd ultimately is Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd, as we'll see in a moment. Our hope ultimately is not in any other man. It's only in Christ. But in terms of the assembly of the saints on earth in the local church, Jesus, the chief shepherd, has appointed under shepherds to lead the flock. Yes, there is only one flock, and Jesus is the shepherd, but he has given under shepherds to portions of that flock to work as stewards on his behalf. And the responsibility of those under shepherds then is to shepherd the flock of God. That means they are to lead them to the green pastures of God's word and Christ-like living, to show them where spiritual food is to be found and to equip them to feed there. This shepherd is to protect them from error and from harm. His role is to feed and instruct, to comfort and to confront and to protect and to warn Therefore, it's been said that a shepherd has two voices, one to comfort the sheep and one to fend off the wolves. It's not meant to be a glamorous job. It is an exhausting job. It is an incredible task because of what it demands of those involved. It involves spending late nights and early mornings in prayer, alone, wrestling with God before His Word. It involves talking with people and ministering to them in their need, weeping with them when they weep, rejoicing with them when they rejoice. And it means doing this as a sinful human being, so He makes mistakes. And often his mistakes are public. And so he's often criticized, sometimes alone, always overwhelmed. And yet he rejoices greatly when he sees Christ's likeness formed in those that he leads. He smiles at those times when God shows his presence and gives encouragement and relief at just the right moment. This is is the character of a man who deeply loves the sheep. It's a divine calling and it comes with a promise of a stricter judgment by Christ and so it is not to be entered lightly. This shepherd is not in a position of prominence or celebrity. He is a humble servant who is there just to lead the flock. There is no greater responsibility, but there is no greater joy.
shepherd the flock. And this isn't just any flock. This is the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. These are not the pastor's people. They are God's people. They are the people for whom Christ died. In spite of the unflattering imagery of sheep, we are still told that the shepherd laid his life down for them. And so we see the love and the tenderness that Christ has for his people. In John 10, he describes himself as the, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he teaches that these sheep are precious to him. And if they are precious to Christ, they better well be precious to the pastor. Beware of any pastor who does not view the sheep as precious. There are no expendable sheep. I heard an interview from a pastor, a prominent pastor in our country recently, who talked about 300 people in his church leaving because of an error that he was teaching from the pulpit. And when they tried to confront him on it, he bit back at them and essentially drove them out of the church, calling them fools and saying, I don't have time for fools. Beloved, that's a wolf. That's not a sheep. That's not a shepherd. These are people for whom Christ died. This is the flock of God. And in addition to that, Peter clarifies which sheep the pastor is to shepherd within the flock of God. Understanding that the flock of God is much bigger than any one local church, Peter says we are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. A pastor is not responsible to shepherd all of the sheep, but only those whom Christ has entrusted to his care. He is not to be the shepherd for the sheep that Christ has entrusted to someone else, nor is he to be using his local ministry as a stepping stone to something bigger and better. No, a pastor's primary ministry is his local church. His primary accountability is to Christ and to his local church. His heart, his focus, his soul must be poured into the group of people that God has put right in front of him. He ought not be looking over his sheep, Christ's sheep that have been entrusted to him. He ought not be looking over their heads and into the camera. These are the sheep that he is to lead. And likewise, the people should not be looking over their pastor's head to another bigger, more well-known, prominent shepherd who cannot know them and has not been called to shepherd them. Now, it is good to benefit from teachers who can teach much better than most of us. It is good. It is commendable. But Peter's saying, remember who the sheep are that you're responsible for. And remember who the shepherds are who care for your souls. So the command is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And the rest of verses 2 and 3 describe what that is to look like. The first thing he says about shepherding in verse 2 is, is that it involves exercising oversight. 
What does that mean? Well, the idea behind that word oversight is seeing the whole picture, looking out over all of the sheep. Think of a shepherd who stands taller than the sheep and is able to look out and see the whole flock all at one time. He's able to see where the borders of the fold are. He's able to see the wolf coming from afar off. He is there to see the forest as well as the trees, if you will. Whatever specific day-to-day -day responsibilities he might have within the local church, those who are pastors are also responsible for looking after the movement of the whole flock. Seeing the big picture. The next thing Peter says about shepherding is that it is to, it, it's to be not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And this is an interesting phrase because the truth is that a pastor does what he does under compulsion. But the right kind of compulsion. What Peter means here is he's not doing this because it's just another job. He's not doing it because someone has pushed him into it. It's not a burdensome task that he takes on unwillingly. That's not what the pastor does. But he takes it on willingly as God would have you. That says something to me about the call of God on this man's life, that there is a compulsion, but it is a spirit-driven compulsion. It is a compulsion from God himself. The Apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, about his own call, when he says, necessity is laid upon me. And he goes on to say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's a compulsion, but it's a compulsion from the Holy Spirit. He took that up willingly. He took that up with joy, not because somebody forced him into it. He didn't view it as a career on par with any other career choice. A faithful pastor doesn't walk down the road of pastoral ministry because of peer pressure or merely human motivation. In fact, the counsel that is often given to an aspiring pastor is, if you can do anything else and be happy, then do it. Because there may come a time when you wish you had. But if you know that you can't do anything else, that could be the call of God upon your life. That could be the Lord's compulsion. This is the Holy Spirit bringing this man to a point where he can't do anything else. When this happens, he embraces the ministry with joy. He embraces the hardships willingly. He embraces the challenges with eagerness, with joy and drive because he knows it's from the Lord. It's no, he knows that's where he wants to give his life. But again, this isn't a human compulsion. It's not a human ambition. It's not a human motivation. The next thing Peter says about shepherding is that it must not be for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, anyone pursuing pastoral ministry because he thinks it will make him rich is either a fool or a fraud. Mark that man and avoid him. A pastor is not to use his ministry position as a means to fulfill his own greed or his own selfish ambitions at the expense of the people he is to lead. And while it is good and even commanded in Scripture that we ought to pay our pastors as we are able, a pastor's motivation must never be to make money. It must never be to use his position for some sort of personal advancement. 
Instead, he is to minister eagerly out of love for the people, out of love for the Lord, and out of love for the ministry. That is what drives him. That's what's behind his embrace of the ministry. And then moving on into verse 3, Peter goes on to say that this shepherding must not be domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Our, our society views positions of leadership as positions of what? Power. Power. We've done ourselves a great disservice by talking about a presidential administration coming to power. We do ourselves a great disservice when pastors think of their position as a position of power. Yes, there is leadership. Yes, there is authority. But it is delegated from the chief shepherd. It is an accountable authority. It is not a position of a man's power. Rather than stepping on the people and pushing them around, those who have been entrusted to our care, rather than lording it over them and seeking to micromanage their lives, the pastor is called to be an example to the flock. You could translate that like the New American Standard does, proving to be examples to the flock. What does that mean? Demonstrating yourself to be an example of the flock. Demonstrating the godly character that you preach. Showing what you believe by living it out. This is where the leadership style of a shepherd really comes into play here. The imagery that is used is important. We are not cowboys. How do cowboys lead? With electric sticks behind the people, prodding them on to where they need to go. Where does a shepherd lead? Out front, with a rod in one hand and a staff in the other. The staff is for the protection of the sheep. The rod is for fending off wolves. Big difference. The call to be an example to the flock is something that encompasses all of life. This man must strive to exemplify in every aspect of his life what he is striving to teach the people. He teaches them to love Christ by showing them his love for Christ. He teaches them to love the church by showing them his love and devotion to the church. He teaches them how to serve by serving. He teaches them how to learn and to obey Scripture by showing them how he has done it in his own life. He is patient. He is loving. He is careful. He is gracious. He is intentional. He is transparent. In short, he is an example to the flock. And all of that is the practice of steadfast leadership for the pastor. But Peter doesn't leave this here without proper motivation. Nowhere in Peter's epistle does he give us instructions with the attitude of just kicking us into place and saying, now go make it work. He gives us motivation every step of the way. And here he does that. And so we've seen the context and the practice of steadfast leadership. Now we see in verse 4 the motivation. The motivation that must drive every faithful pastor. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There it is again. Similar to what he has said to all the saints. This eternal glorious inheritance. He says, pastors, that belongs to you. 
if you are faithful in your task. When the chief shepherd appears, what's that talking about? When Christ returns. Again, managing, navigating the hardships of this life by keeping our eyes on the return of Christ. That can happen at any moment, right? And when that happens, there is the unfading crown of glory. That word crown is not the word diadem, as if it were the king's crown that only belongs to Christ. This is the word Stephanos, which refers to that laurel wreath that was given to the victor in the Olympic Games who completed the task. And Paul uses that imagery well, right? Who wins? The one who finishes. Only here, this is not some trinket that is handed to us. This isn't just a bunch of leaves that will fade and wither and die. This is the crown that is glory. That's the language of the text. The unfading crown that is glory. The glory of our eternal inheritance. There is a glory that awaits God's faithful under shepherds. It is not a simple crown. It is not, not just a, a, a trinket that passes away. It is an eternal glory. We too are striving and longing to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Shepherding God's flock is a serious and sober responsibility. Scripture has plenty to say about it. In Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, in Ezekiel chapter 34, we see the contempt and the judgment that God expresses toward those shepherds among his people who did not fulfill their calling who abused the sheep and neglected the sheep. In Hebrews 13 and James chapter 3, we see that shepherds of God's flock will give an account to God for their stewardship and they will be held to a stricter judgment. But that is not meant to discourage men from pursuing the ministry, from doing the work of shepherding. But rather it is meant to communicate the weight of the task. But the faithfulness of a biblical shepherd, we are also taught in Scripture, means future reward in heaven, as well as the present stability and security of the church in troublesome times. And that brings us to the first part of verse 5, where we see finally the response to steadfast leadership. What does all of this mean for the congregation at large? Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That phrase, you who are younger, is a little bit difficult to understand. Even reading the commentators, no one seems to come to a consensus on exactly what that's referring to. It would seem to be referring to those who are young people within the congregation. And that could be the case. Some say that it is. But whenever you see the apostles pointing out one particular age group, usually somewhere else they're going to point out another one. And they're going to give specific application principles. Here, he just says, you who are younger. And the phrase, the word that is behind younger, doesn't just mean young in age, it can mean new. As in, new to the faith, new to the church possibly newly converted, right? And this phrase is situated in a place where it is in direct comparison to what he has just said to the elders. 
And this command to be subject means to arrange yourself under or to follow as a military commander. I think we need to be careful applying the imagery of a military commander to a pastor of a church. But the arrangement of yourself under somebody's leadership is what's in view here when he says be subject. So, I know there's debate about this. But I would suggest that this phrase has more to do with maturity and responsibility of the leadership and with the position of the people in relation to that leadership in the context of what Peter is saying here. In other words, it's as if Peter, having given this charge to the elders, now turns his attention to the congregation and says, as they follow this exhortation, you follow them. As they submit to Christ, as they fulfill their calling, as they set this biblical example for you, you submit to them and follow them in the fear of Christ. That's what godly followership is. That's what steadfast followership is within a church. It's not blind loyalty to a person. As if we're going to do everything we can to make his platform bigger and do whatever he wants. That's not biblical leadership. That is not biblical followership. But that is, here is a man that God has set up before us, or here is a group of men that God has put in our church to lead us. We, because we fear Christ and we follow his word, are going to follow them as they fear Christ and follow his word. You know what that means? When they don't, you get the call them on. But when they do, you follow. Not blindly. Not that you're never allowed to ask a question or present an alternative view. This is not an autocracy. But this is the attitude that we have toward those who shepherd us. As they follow Christ. These are troublesome times that we live in. We're learning more and more how difficult it is to be Christians in a foreign land. We can already see that the world's hostility is growing, and we can all look around us and find leaders who have made an absolute shipwreck of their responsibility because they have wanted to follow worldly trends, they have wanted to uh, enrich themselves, or they have had some other motivation than what Peter has laid out here. It is imperative that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in these times stand fast in unity together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, as Paul says in Philippians 1. And this text is Peter's urgent and timely call for the godly pastors among them to stand up and to lead God's people God's way, not according to the world's trends or pressures, but according to the word of God. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you'll see a... a, uh, another call, a charge from the Apostle Paul that, that expresses the same idea to them. Stand up and lead. He says in verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. That's how a pastor shepherds the sheep. The ministry of the word. And then he says, be ready in season and out of season. Guess what, beloved? We're out of season today. Reprove, 
rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. It's here. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's the false teachers. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into, into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That is the call to faithful pastors. This is a call to faithful church members. Look for those men. And this is a call for the churches at large to follow those men as they follow Christ. Turn over and closing to Hebrews chapter 10. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 13. Here's the charge in light of all of this to the people of God in the churches. Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What is of an advantage to you? To have men who follow what Peter has exhorted here as your leaders. And I say this as a leader among you. You hold your leadership to this. And anyone who refuses to follow this, you run out. You're allowed to do that. But if you have faithful leadership among you, let them lead. It is to your advantage. Let them lead you through times that are very confusing. It is to your advantage. For the sake of Christ, and for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of our steadfast hope in a foreign land, may God give us these kind of leaders. May this be what we're looking for. And may we be this kind of church. It's always weird to preach a text like this as a pastor. Because I feel like there's this big old mirror right here facing me. Why do I do this? One, because you need to know what God expects of you. Two, because you need to know how to respond to leadership. And three, because it would make my life if God would call somebody, some young man in this church to pastoral leadership. Is it possible? Is it possible? That God could raise up from our own midst men who are called to preach the word? Men who understand now this is not a glamorous task. This is not just another job. It is hard. It is difficult. It is life-consuming. It is 24-7. It is a burdensome task in a lot of ways, and yet it is the most joyous task in all the world. Could it be that God would work in some young man's heart in our life? And I say, young, maybe it's an old man. That can happen too who says, this is what I want. I want to pursue this, and if God would let me, I want to go this way. Why? Because there are churches all across this country who desperately need this kind of man to lead their church, and they're having a hard time finding them. My burden for this church is not only that we would be healthy and growing, but that we would be a training center for future pastors. Somehow, some way. Let's pray.